Well, hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chad Michael Bowden, and thank you so much for clicking on a brand new episode of Hindsight is 20 slash 200. If you know anybody that would like to listen to the podcast, please remind them they can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Just look for Hindsight is 20 slash 200. Just make sure you put the slash in between 2200. <laughs> um, anyways, if you missed the last episode, I sat down with really good friends of the podcast, um, the host of the Seesaw podcast, Cleves and T. Um, they're very good friends. I consider them kind of mentors because before we started working on the podcast over here on my, my end, um, I had no idea what I was doing, how I was going to record or set up. And I just reached out to them and they really, you know, had the experience and they taught me what I should do, what I should not do, which is very important as well. Um, so I, I really appreciate them and I, I love them. They kind of don't hold anything back when it comes to the way they feel about advocacy and um, in the visually impaired community. So they're kind of those unfiltered voices that aren't afraid to, uh, talk about the more controversial stuff. So um, I like them for that. And I hope you will too. Please go follow them. You can find them anywhere that um, you get your podcast on. All right. Anyways, let's get on to today's episode. I have a very special guest all the way from Canada. Uh, She is a artist. She is a advocate. um, And she is the great and powerful Amy Amanti. So please welcome my guest, Amy Amanti. Thanks, Chad. Happy to be here all the way from Canada. <laughs> How are you today? Hopefully um, the weather is fine there. Yes. You know, I live in Vancouver um, on the west coast of Canada. And so it's a tropical rainforest. Yeah. And so we get a lot of rain. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so we lovingly refer to this month of the year as January. <laughs> January. That's funny. Yeah. It's yeah. not too bad today. Yeah. Just how, how cold does it get there usually around this time of year? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm only going to be able to give that to you in Celsius. So you're going to have to Fahrenheit yourself. But it doesn't usually get colder than like minus one or minus two. Like it hardly ever snows. But that is Celsius. And we can pull out our scary and ask uh-huh. scary. But mm. minus two is in Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, it, you know, so for us, zero is freezing. So whatever right. freezing is for you all. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't usually dip below freezing. Well, at least that's not below freezing. So <laughs> yeah. even in the winter time. Uh, really? That's nice. Yeah. And we hardly get any snow. Like I, I live at the base of a mountain, so it snows up on the mountain, um, but not down typically where I live. Uh, but the nicest thing about being on the West coast is that you have mountain and beach and mm-hmm. ocean and trailhead. And it's like anything you want to go explore in terms of the outdoors, it's here any time of year. That sounds beautiful. Definitely a a lot more beautiful than Florida. (laughs) Well, I mean, I've never been to Florida, but uh, I can imagine that to reacclimatize to someplace that has got quite a humidity. Yeah. um, My body probably is not that prepared to do that. (laughs) No, the humidity is terrible. If, if, it, it, like it, it like it's one thing if it wanted to be 98 degrees out but then you add in the humidity and you're just like I, I i can't stand outside for more than 30 seconds before losing 10 pounds of water weight <laughs> yeah yeah and in, in a place like florida and many of your your states in the u.s you have built-in air conditioning everywhere mm-hmm. whereas we don't have that here in in vancouver it's, it has never been a necessity right. although in the last couple of years with the heat dome um that we've experienced um they're starting to think about putting that in building code. 
So the heat only lasts for a couple of weeks a year, but, um, but we've had several people who, who died in their apartments um, last summer because I think there was like over close to 700 of them. Oh, wow. Uh, A lot of elderly people, a lot of people who were, you know, had uh, underlining conditions of things Mm -hmm. that were like literally in sweat boxes in their apartments. And oh, wow. Because you have, you have a lot of central air, right? Um, it's going to be different in each, in each Mm -hmm. house, obviously. Um, and maybe I bet you the newer houses have Uh have like, um, air conditioning and that kind of thing. In my house, we have a good old, uh, water heater and boiler (laughs) system. Um, we have radiant heat. So, but you know, because it doesn't get all that cold here, we don't actually need to put it on most Mm, of the time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, we could talk about that later. <laughs> Let's talk about the reason that I have you on, actually, and that is to talk about all the amazing work that you do um, as an artist and an advocate. But um, before we get into that, would you mind just introducing yourself to my listeners? Yeah, so Amy Amanti is my name. Pronouns are she, her. Um, I'm a white settler, and up here in Vancouver, I'm on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and tsleil First Nations. Um, and so, yeah, I've been an artist for a long time. Um, and I'm an advocate and I, I'm a person who uh, was born with my sight. And uh, when I was about 24 years old, so I'm outing myself, I have a, I have a big birthday coming up this year. Um, I, um, I lost my sight about 15 ish years ago, 15, mm-hmm. 16 years ago now. So, um, so that's a little bit about me. And I, you know, I, 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 it took a long time to reinvent myself. Mm-hmm. I was an artist before um, my sight loss. And when I, when I lost my sight, I really went through that transition of, well, who's going to want a blind actor? Like, how does that mm. work? Um, so that's, you know, I think that's a journey that a lot of folks go through when they acquire a disability, mm-hmm. the who I was and who I am. But I, I chat, I tend to look at my sight loss now as a gift um, mm. because I get to do a lot of things and I've met a lot of fantastic people that I just would not have had um, opportunity to be in space with them before this time. So mm-hmm. You know, when you when you figure out for yourself that your acquired disability is a is a is a gift, well, was that a game changer? It's a game changer. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. I um, yeah. you know, I'm very active on social media, and I I get to interact with a lot of amazing people, some advocates, just some that are just disabled and living their lives the best that they can and achieving where others probably think they can't achieve. And um, I had one individual um respond to a tweet I retweeted, and basically it was the tweet said, you know you know, we never bat an eye when someone says like, oh yeah, I'd love a cure for my blindness. But, you know, we, we, we start asking people like, oh really? When they say, I don't want a cure for my blindness or my disability because I'm comfortable enough with it now. Mm-hmm. And one of the individuals that responded saying, well, like, I can't understand why you would think of your blindness as a gift for mm-hmm. me. You know, it's this thing that I have problems with. And so he basically, he was just wanting, wanting to know, like, how do you, how can you say that? And how, how have you gotten to that point? And you bring up a really good point. It's just, sometimes it just takes a while for you to one, be comfortable with, you know, your disability. Um, I think it's a lot of learning and experience. I think it's important that people understand that for people that say that, you can say that confidently that, you know, no, my disability is a gift. They have struggled so much, whether, you know, they've had ups and downs and or how many ups and downs they have. Um, but I think it's just more so important of understanding that just because you have a disability, it doesn't limit you to what you can achieve. Um, and, you know, I just think it's important that for people that are asking those of us like yourself and I who say, no, um, my disability is a gift. Or if someone asks me, do you want to care for your blindness? I probably would 
now say to them, no, I'm fine if I just go completely blind. But I think that comes with time and understanding of disability yeah. itself. It does. And I think, you know, there's a, when you're an advocate in this mm -hmm. space, um, as we are, there mm -hmm. is a, a different level of communicating with the world. Because the last thing that I want to do is want able-bodied people, I don't know if you call them tabs where you are, but <laughs> we call them tabs where I am, temporarily able-bodied. Mm -hmm. um, because you can join this club at any time. A hundred percent. A part of a part of me sharing that this is a gift is because blindness is the number one fear of disability amongst human beings. Mm -hmm. And we and all get it eventually. You just got to live long enough, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the truth of it is, is that, yeah, it's a journey. And yeah, not everybody's going to look at it that way. But the, but the truth of it for me is that I would rather folks um, see that I am a functional human being that enjoys mm -hmm. my life than walk around saying, oh, poor Amy, she lost her sight. That was so tragic, mm -hmm. right? Like stewing and living in that for me is, uh, doesn't allow me to progress as a human being. And I just mm -hmm. want to live my life. So mm -hmm. you find a way to just live your life, right? And you mm -hmm. find the joys and the beauty in that. And then you start to say, you know what? This is like, for me, this is, it's annoying. It's inconvenient, <laughs> but it's not terminal. Right. I got a life to live, uh -huh. right? And so you just sort of get on with it. Otherwise you stay in bed all the time and you wake up 90 years old and be like, huh, where did my life go? Right. What, what did I do? What are the lesser of the evils, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. And, you know, I just think, yeah, I think a lot of times it's just finding that perspective um, mm -hmm. and looking at life that way, because I, I'm the same way. And my parents were the same way. Um, you know, I credit my ability to say that I'm comfortable with going blind because everyone around me didn't want me to be like what you're like, oh, poor me. I have to sit on my bum all day because I can't go out and contribute to the world because of my disability. No one in my corner of friends or even my family allowed me to do that because my parents were to the point where they're like, okay, so um, I know you just graduated college, but you've had about a year to figure out what you want to do with your life and get a job or you're going to go back to college because you're not going to live under our house um, right. uh, um, and just do nothing. Um, you can yeah. go do that somewhere else. So, they, so didn't, they, didn't <laughs> they didn't coddle you. Yeah. They didn't give you a reason to give yourself excuses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important because it is very easy, especially for young kids growing up with a disability for us to get into this mindset of, oh, we're not good enough. And some people, you know, my mom will be the first to admit that she probably coddled me a little too much, but uh, I think she knew just when was enough time to stop doing that and be like, all right, he, he's an adult now. He's got to figure some of this stuff out on his own. I can't be there for him 24 seven. Mm -hmm. Now we were talking before um, the, the podcast started and you were you know, you, you, you expressed something to me um, that was interesting, but, um, you know, you, um, you shared that you, of course, you had diabetes, um, but you lost your, um, your vision because of the surgery that you went in to have. Can, um, can you share that with my listeners, please, if that's comfortable for you? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was diagnosed with type one diabetes, which is an autoimmune condition when I was five. Mm -hmm. And so I've have, have, have lived uh, about 35 years now with type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until my early 20s, I think it was around 23, that I um, experienced a diabetic coma mm -hmm. for eight days. Um, I'd never been in one before because my father is also type 1 diabetic. Mm -hmm. So when I was a kid, they recognized the signs. 
of, of type one diabetes. And so I, I didn't um, go into what they call ketoacidosis, which can eventually put you in a diabetic coma. <laughs> but in my, my, in my twenties, I experienced that kind of accidentally. And, um, and after I came out of that coma, I, uh, this is, this is my analogy for it. It was like, if you imagine your body as a, as a breaker system, like a, you know, electricians have a, a breaker panel. And when the coma happened, all the lights went out. And when I came out of my coma eight days later, some of the lights came back on, some of them flickered, some of them were disconnected. Like that's kind of my analogy of my body. Mm-hmm. And so as a, as a complication of all of those things, um, uh, I have many, many rare complications from diabetes. So I have neuropathy in my feet. So my brain tells my, my feet tell my brain that I'm walking on razor blades, which of course is not true. Um, but that's what I feel like when I walk, I have, um, a digestive condition. So I experience a lot of nausea and vomiting and a whole bunch of other nasty digestive things. And, uh, and the, on the sight loss thing was, um, uh, initially, you know, they started to, to cauterize the blood vessels that grow when you have diabetic retinopathy, but the loss of sight was actually due to a surgical complication, um, which was a less than 1% chance of the eye, the retina detaching. And it happened in both eyes. Wow. So, you know, it's like, like we had said before, you know, even bad luck is, is luck. So I <laughs> bought a lottery ticket. Uh, uh, that's crazy. But, but that's, and, and, you know, one of the things we were saying, what I learned after the fact when I switched doctors was the second doctor said to me, oh, I was able to remove the rest of the vitreous. And I was like, the rest of the vitreous, you know, the, the jelly in the middle of the eye. And he said, yeah, I could, I removed the rest of it. And I said, the other doctor had done two vitreectomies, which is removing of the vitreous. So why is there any left over in the eye? Mm. And it was the leftover vitreous that tugged at the retinas that caused them to detach. Oh. Um, and so I would consider that negligence, but yeah. the Canadian government does not. And, um, and we don't have a mechanism for, for suing and, and for doctors being liable. It's not not the same as it is in the States and in Canada, you know, your doctors are like golf buddies. They hang out with each other. They refer, like we have social medicine, which is, it's really great. Like these surgeries that I had probably cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I have five surgeries on my eyes under general anesthetic. Um, I don't even know what it would cost to have stayed in intensive care for eight days when I had, you know, but we're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, Mm -hmm. which I did never, I never received a bill for, and I never would receive a bill for, but you know, the, 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 uh, the opposite of that is that there isn't this mechanism of liability in place. Responsibility. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, I mean, it is available, but it's under very specific reasons and you have to be able to prove gross negligence. Mm -hmm. So unless I could prove that my doctor showed up and did my surgery drunk, um, which he didn't, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, that is sort of the thing that negligence is. Otherwise, you're, it's just like, well, there's a statistic and not all every surgery goes right. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay. But if you, you let, it's like, you know, when the doctor leaves this, the sponge in you, that should be negligence. <laughs> but probably up here, it wouldn't be because it would just be like, well, shit happens. Yeah, that's crazy. It's just, it's like, if, if, it's just it's like it's the lack of like holding response those you know those things to the responsibility of what could happen and 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 i get it laws are different but it's just like wow you would think if anything could be like negligence you'd think it'd be like a surgery that you know that was performed wrong but you know it's just whatever it's just it's just crazy to think that you know something like that can happen and then it's just like well I didn't do anything wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who's the one who did something wrong here? Yeah. 
so yeah, exactly what you feel like. Yeah, yeah. So prior to this, um, what was your vision quite normal and stable? Were you at, at any time having any changes in your vision up to the, you know, this, this botched surgery, basically? Nope, not mm -hmm. at all. So mm -hmm. I was uh, living my life. I was driving my car. I was doing, mm -hmm. doing everything. And then, uh, and then, and then things sort of sw switched on a dime. Yeah, that, that has to be so insane. Just that, you know, for me, it's just been a progressive loss of vision over many, many years. But, you know, that's the thing about vision is sometimes, like you said, you know, T tabs, as you said, as you call it, as he's called mm -hmm. it, you know, it can happen to anybody at any time. And I can only imagine the transitions that you had to go through um, after you basically wake up and then, you know, go to do that surgery and then, oh, well, sorry, yeah. now you're blind. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it, it is, uh, I actually find that for me, if it, if I had gone through what you're going through in terms of having to adjust my sight every mm -hmm. couple of years or whatever, right. you're like, oh, well, I, you know, now I got to learn how to do this again. Mm -hmm. For me, I just like it all left at one time Yeah. and I had to learn how to readapt. Mm -hmm. Um, but that transition was, I think much easier because it was like, okay, I know what I'm dealing with and I can, you know, I, I remember the day I came home after surgery and at that time. I didn't know that I wasn't going to heal from it because mm -hmm. um, the surgery was initially successful and two months later, the retina detached. Right. So, um, but I remember, I remember, you know, going to brush my teeth and not being able to get the toothpaste on the toothbrush because I had no skills to do that as a person that doesn't see. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there's, there's these, all of these basic life things that you have to figure out how to do, you know, how do I chop vegetables now that I don't use my eyes yeah. to, to use a knife and how do I use a computer and how do I, you know, make sure my clothes match and all of those things. And that takes time to be able to, to navigate through for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that. <laughs> anyone asked me, what's the hardest thing that you had to do? I mean, adjust to you when you started losing your vision, it's like making sure my cloaks colors match. So I don't look yeah. like a goofball. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just like the littlest things can it become the hardest things. And, you know, people don't even like think about it. It's just like not even having to like understand, like navigating your cabinets just so that you make sure you find the bowls. So you're not using a cup or you're not putting um, brown sugar in when you think it's like milk or, you know, what I mean? it's just like all these like crazy things that you would like think otherwise. Oh, well, that's easy I can do that you know with my eyes closed and it's like well once you actually have to do it with your eyes closed it's a little bit yeah. harder than you imagined <laughs> I mean the hardest thing for me in the beginning and this is going to sound so ridiculous is telling the difference between my shampoo bottle and my conditioner bottle because they were oh, the same yeah. shape oh that's I hate that so much and it was another blind person who said to me well just put an elastic band around one of them mm -hmm. easy peasy yeah that was that was always the hardest thing because my mom would always buy similar shaped bottles, but she would also buy same brands. So it's not like oh, it's it's a matter of their different shape. Um, it's like they're the same brands, so and then you just have to be like, all right, hopefully yeah, this yeah. is the conditioner and not the shampoo. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, um, what what was your background um, professionally um, up to this point? Were you um, working in any um, career field prior to the surgery? Yeah, I was, um, I was a gemologist. Mm -hmm. So I was uh, studying rocks and minerals Ooh, and using microscopes. Stuff. Yeah. 
So of course you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've always loved rocks. I have a huge um, rock collection. I've, I've always I don't know what it is about them but I, I've just loved them like I lived in Arizona for a number of years growing up and of course the great thing about Arizona has a lot of um, mountains and of course a lot of mineral preserves come from those mountains so my dad and my mom would just take us hiking and I would more so just want to you know look for rocks <laughs> and all these different shapes and crystals and you know I, I have a bunch of just like precious gems and geodes so it's like I, I, I love rocks so so <laughs> yeah for me it was it was gemstones for sure yeah yeah like i i uh, i have this like well who knows it will happen oh i i mean i hope it'll happen if i find the right you know right girl is uh you know i i have this huge giant piece of rose quartz um that i would love to cut and make into a ring for ha, 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 yeah <laughs> for someone if i you know find the right person to settle down with but you know it's just like that's something that I'm, I've been very passionate about in terms of like, if it had to like, you know, we all have our collections that we love when we're growing up. Mine was for sure rocks and gems. But well, you know, like, so after you get the surgery, um, you know, for about how long um, did you kind of, you know, did you take some time to figure things out or, or, you know, like I gotta just jump into this new crazy life of mine and figure out my trial under fire. <laughs> No, um, you know, I, I, I was under, I was on bed rest for a year, mm -hmm. um, waiting for my retinas to heal mm -hmm. and they never did. Right, right. So, um, so, you know, I took the year and I didn't panic about anything. I just mm -hmm. waited. I have a very, very small, very small amount of partial sight, but it's, um, well, I'm glad to have it. We'll just say that, but it's right. not hugely, uh, you know, it, you know, it, it is what it is. So we'll just right, right. leave it at that. But right, um, right. Of course. Um, I did attempt to drive my car. Oh, goodness. Because, you know, you don't necessarily know how much you don't see until you try and do something. Right. That, you know, was so second nature to you. But I, I had my mother with me mm -hmm. and I said to her, I just want to drive around the block because I didn't make any decisions in that time about, you know, like selling my car, any big decisions. I just, I just, you know, took a year off work and, 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 you know, that was that was the thing I did, Chad, mm -hmm. truly. And uh, and I went to drive around the block and I was like, OK, can't do this. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a clear sign for me that it was time to to transition. It was time to let mm -hmm. go of of uh, what Amy had done before and, and focus on what Amy can do now and mm -hmm. um, what Amy needs to do to be able to do the things that she wants to do now. Mm -hmm. And then it was really just about. Um, connecting with organizations and people and, um, and, and, and telling myself that I wasn't going to search a cure because there wasn't a cure, mm -hmm. you know, when your retina detaches um, and it's damaged, you know, there's, there, there's no cure for that. Um, so, you know, there are some people that I know that lose their sight that are, are literally sitting in their chairs waiting for the cure. Mm -hmm. And I just had far too much life to live, Chad. I wasn't mm -hmm. gonna, I wasn't gonna, you know, if, if something comes along, maybe, you know, right. Maybe not. I don't know. I, mm -hmm. I haven't figured that out yet. I'm not in any rush. I mean, I'd love to be able to drive again, but we're so, <laughs> we're so close to autonomous vehicles, I know. <laughs> you know, and when you've got ride share and stuff, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, if I wanted to take myself out for lunch, that's what I would do when I had my own car. You know, I would take myself out for lunch, even if I was at work, I'd be like, yeah, I want to drive to wherever my favorite restaurant and mm -hmm. go have a bite to eat. So, you know, I can do that now. Yeah. Um, you know, a little bit more easily than I could when it was just like, oh, you mean I got to take the bus for three hours to get to mm -hmm. the restaurant, yeah. you know? So uh, it's not, 
it's not all that bad. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's definitely gotten a lot better, you know, even, um, you know, I'm only 29 and even in my lifetime, I've seen dramatic changes, like when it comes to rights share, you know, especially where I grew up, you know, I grew up in a very small town where that wasn't like, you know, any sort of possibility, you know, there's no such thing as ride share or there, there was nothing but roads, no sidewalks. You can't even just walk around with your guide dog. And then I moved down to, to Southern Florida and it's like, oh, wow, this feels like a completely different world, but it's the same state. But it was just amazing to see how like accessible everything was to me in this more accepting environment. So, you know, the ride share, the the sidewalks and things being within walking distance to me. Yeah, it's just like, oh, wow. So things are actually a lot better (laughs) and a lot more open to me than I thought they were. Yeah, once you once you find out, you know, what amenities are around you and Mm -hmm. you get really comfortable visiting those places, then life goes on, right? Mm -hmm, Like why, mm -hmm. why, why would we spend, why would we waste the years dwelling on stuff that's not going to change when the stuff that we can change, we have the power to do that. And that's our, Mm -hmm. that's our attitude. Mm -hmm. And I felt like if I changed my attitude, it would change the attitude of my friends and my family and my parents and like people around me. Cause I think that there was a time too, where they were all like, Ooh, should I like invite her to come to the movies? Yeah. You know, like, you know, and it's like, yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's all there's all all those things to, to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is that kind of like that time of like walking on eggshells when it comes to disability, especially when it's very fresh in everybody's mm-hmm. mind. Just like, OK, so let's not say anything about this because we might upset Amy. That's um, right. And, and let's not invite her to this because we might be excluding her from a, you know, a true experience. But I think a lot of people actually misunderstand that um it's even more isolating and um you know debilitating for us to be excluded from that stuff in the first place Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. i agree yeah so you took a year off to basically you know allow the healing to happen because at this time you you were on bed rest um you know basically it was kind of just like a time of self-discovery of just learning okay so what can't I do, but what can I still do? And how can I basically keep moving mm-hmm. forward? Um, when did you, you know, of course you said that you, you were working with rocks and, you know, using these microscopes, of course, I mean, it had to be very apparent that this was not oh, yeah. going to be a job that you could continue to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so when did that transition happen as well? Um, well, my, I was working for a jewelry company and they had kept me on payroll for that just about that entire year Mm -hmm. um so that was really lovely of them to have not Mm -hmm. sort of just cut and run Mm -hmm. um so you know it was i think it was just after i i was like nope can't drive the car anymore Mm -hmm. that i put the car up for sale and um and uh and i just decided that you know i had to figure out how to move forward and for me you know i i originally was, you know, I was working with an insurance company who wanted to get me back to work mm-hmm. and I wasn't going to be able to go back to work to, you know, to the jewelry store that I worked for. So they were the ones that set me up with like learning how to use screen readers and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I started on that journey, which took, mm-hmm. you know, took, took a year and a bit mm-hmm. on its own. And then I started volunteering, uh, with, um, disability organizations, a lot of them in the blind community. So like, you know, BC blind sports is our big sports organization. I dragon boat with them. So I would, I would volunteer on their board and I would work with our local municipalities on the built environment and what's accessible and 
And, um, and, and that's how I justified this idea of, you know, what happens if, if when I go to look for a job, I've got these big gaps of employment on my resume, people mm-hmm. are going to think that think I did nothing. So I volunteered about 60 hours a week, mm-hmm. um, more than most people work. And, um, and that, that gave me a lot of connecting in the community. And I, and I told myself that the more connecting I do, the more opportunities will come eventually for like work and that kind of thing. And I tell you, it took a very, very long time because when you become good at volunteering, people continue to ask you to volunteer. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it's like, well, wait a second, I'm doing this. I, I'm volunteering as if you were paying me a million dollars to do it. Mm-hmm. So now pay me a wage to do something. Right. So that mm-hmm. took a very long time. And it actually wasn't until the pandemic that I started working more hours than I know exist in a day because, and I don't know if this resonates for you, but the world changed quickly for folks to work at home. So now it wasn't so unusual for me to say, well, working on at home is my best option because my setup is exactly what I need it to be. The temperature is what I need. The lighting's what I need. You know, I've got all of the accessible gear that I need, and I wouldn't possibly be able to transport that to and from work every day. Um, so to get up from my bed and transfer over to my my office um, as a commute, uh, now I'm working probably, this is why you and I've had such a problem connecting, but I work probably 16, 17 hours a day. Um, and it's a lot. I'm a self-employed person uh, mm-hmm. working in the arts and also working in accessibility. And so mm-hmm. you you take those gigs when they come, but you all, that, there's also a lot of networking. And yeah. the minute you don't um, the minute you say no to a client, they find somebody else and somebody else becomes their go-to person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to maintain being the go-to person. And, and so far, <laughs> knock on wood, knock on wood, um, that's been successful for me. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I completely um, resonate with that because, you know, this, this podcast was born out of the pandemic. Um, yeah. You know, it came about because, it, it, you know, it is possible to do from home. And, you know, you know, I, I know that I am in a very similar boat as many people as, you know, I lost, um, you know, a, a job because of the pandemic. You know, I was in philanthropy with Southeastern Guide Dogs mm-hmm. um, and they, you know, of course, they had to make cuts to continue to stay f- afloat because they're a nonprofit. So, you know, you know, they don't have their own actual, you know, revenue, you know, it comes yeah, from the public. Yeah. So I was one of those decisions that had to, you know, be made. And I completely understand. And I, I love that they are continuing and it sounds like they're doing better now. So that's, that's all I could hope for. But like you said, this, this podcast came out of the idea that, um, well, I have the equipment and I definitely have the time. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Why not start talking? I, I was already talking as a public speaker for Southeastern. So it's definitely something that I know I can do. So, yeah. yeah. And like you said, um, you know, I, I mean, people don't understand, but um, there's days where I like, I'll wake up at six in the morning and I won't go to bed till about four in the morning. And then I'm waking up at six in the morning again, because my guide dog wants to eat breakfast. So it's like, there's days where literally I've only, I've only had two hours of sleep within 24 hours. Yeah. And that's just me hustling, <laughs> just yeah. sending out emails, finding people that I can network with, just trying to figure out, okay, I want this to be my forever job. And if mm-hmm. I do, I've got to build it from the ground up. And that means that I'm going to have to work way more hours in a day that I know is reasonable for other people that mm-hmm. don't have the same determination as I do. Well, and you hope at some point that, you know, after a few years, the grafting doesn't have to be that difficult because right. you build up 
the networks and the community um, that will that will automatically come to you for stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so podcasting is a little bit different because of course you want to have you know new guests all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, my podcast also was born out of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my, I guess my, my situation is a tad different because I was working with a, a company up here called Accessible Media Inc, AMI for short. And, um, and I was already doing a lot of work. So I do a, a weekly movie review for them. So I watch mm-hmm. something on Netflix or Prime or whatever. And, um, and then I go on the radio slash TV and we do the, mo- the movie review every Monday morning. And uh, anyway, so I was already doing a bunch of work for them and they said, well, we've got some money. And I was like, you want to pay me to do a podcast? <laughs> um, and they just have kept renewing it. So accessing art with Amy is my podcast and it's on the intersection of art and disability, because of course that's kind of my life mm-hmm. on the intersection of art and disability. Um, and I, and I do the same thing that you do is I hustle and I find guests from all over the world that identify as artists and live with disability. And it's a very short podcast. It's about 25 to 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, cause those are the parameters that the organization puts on it. Right, and, right. um, and that's totally fine with me. And, and that has been a paid gig yeah. and that is, you know, and you can get a media company to back you and our, that media company is about creating Canadian content. So mm-hmm. Um, and disability content and I don't I don't know what kind of organizations you have in the states that might do that but um, mm-hmm. you'd think that there'd be some interest around folks that are creating podcasts like you've got around advocacy and life experience and all those things mm-hmm. yeah you know definitely the community in terms of advocate uh, advocates themselves and other companies have been great to me you know I, I've I've received very few no's to come on my podcast so yeah that's yeah. very encouraging to me as someone like and then and then people look at like oh he's put 50 episodes out but I put 50 episodes out in four months yeah so that's very crazy because like I've I've been talking to people like, oh I've been doing this for three years and I'm already catching up to them in terms of content um, so it definitely, um, the community has been there for me to work as much as I want. And, mm-hmm. and there is a little bit of money coming in now, um, already. And that's, and that's great to see. Um, but you know, that would be something interesting for me to look into is to say like a division of blind services, or maybe even Southeastern and see mm-hmm. like, you know, is, is this something that you would be open to? Because like you said, there's, there's gotta be someone um, here in, in, in my state that would see the benefits of having me create this content for them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and not only that, but, you know, if you're reaching out to folks in the blind community from wherever in mm-hmm. the world, possibly, um, I mean, you found me in Canada. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're, you're also able to say to these organizations, yeah, I can connect you with other blind folks. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, at some point I may want a guide dog and, and maybe, you know, Southwestern is where I, I can apply. I don't know how, <laughs> how it all works, but most of the guide dog schools are in the States. So whether it's the seeing eye or GDB or, mm-hmm. you know, any of those, those names, um, in Canada, we don't have a lot of guide dog services. We've got a small, small number of them. So often we're often shipped to the U S to do, uh, to do our training. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, and you never know when your next donation is going to come from. <laughs> that's, that's true too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a crazy, you know, thing. And that, that is something interesting to, to um, ask you about is how are the organizations up in Canada, like on um, the availability? Um, I, I've talked to some people and it sounds like there, there's not as many options as there might be here in the States. Um, 
So, so like, what are the opportunities to like find those organizations that are going to help you adjust to something like vision loss? Yeah, um, you know, the population of Canada, while our country landmass is way bigger than the United States, mm -hmm. way bigger, mm -hmm. um, you know, your population is 10 times the size of ours. So what do you, you are 300 million plus in the States and we're around 30 million in Canada. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we just, you know, simply because we don't have the same population, don't have the same number of resources. Mm -hmm. um, so we have, you know, the Canadian Council for the Blind, and we have what's called the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. And those would be the two sort of biggest national organizations. And then each province is going to have, you know, their own sports organization. So in BC here, it's British Columbia, BC, mm -hmm. Blind Sports and Recreation. And I think in Alberta, it's the Alberta Sports and Recreation. You know, um, so there's, you know, we've got an organization here in, in BC called Blind Beginnings, which works with um, youth and children and their siblings and families around blindness. Um, they also have a podcast called Limitless, <laughs> where all the kids like do different podcast episodes and stuff. It's, a, it's, uh, it's fun. That's cool. So, yeah. So there's, there's, you know, there's a handful of, of stuff. I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not for a lack of services, but what mm -hmm. I would say is if you are somebody who doesn't, you know, believe in one organization or another, there isn't really a lot of places to turn to. Whereas gotcha. in the States, you've got a lot of different factions, right? So if you're, you know, if you're not somebody who's interested in the NFB, then you might be something, someone who's interested in the ACB, right? Like right. you have options to be able to, to go back and forth or to join all or, or all the organizations if you mm -hmm. want to, you know? And I think that there's a lot more, uh, there, there's a lot more politics in the States around blindness <laughs> in terms of the organizations, mm -hmm. right? Because I think, you know, everybody's got such varying opinions on what it's like to, to be blind. And, and up here in Canada, um, we have a faction that's similar to the NFB, uh, maybe mm -hmm. a little more radical, um the cfb and you know their 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 belief really is is that you know we don't need folks to adjust to us we'll adjust to you mm. and it's like so they don't want to have like braille on our money and they don't want to have audio description and it's like wait a second those are things that i rely on right don't take those things away from me but they're like no we'll fit into the world as it is um but it's a very small group of folks yeah um, so you know it's 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 to each their own i suppose as to what organizations as an advocate the tricky thing is is that you want to you want to know what all the organizations are doing you want to be on all their mailing lists so i'm on everybody's mailing list mm -hmm. and i'm i'm a member of all of the organizations and the optics of that is like you know when one organization is like oh you're a member of this organization it's like well really i'm a member because I want to know what's happening in our community. I want to know all sides of it because that's part of my job mm -hmm. <laughs> as yeah. an advocate to understand those things, but not everybody gets that. Um, so they just see that you've got a membership to X, Y, Z and they're like, Ooh, they're radical. And you're like, but that, you know, I just, I'm on their mailing list cause, you know? Um, so I, I prefer not to get involved in the politics of stuff, mm -hmm. um, as best I possibly can, but you know, the, the longer you're in this game, the harder it is for that you know but also the more you learn about what the politics are and where you know where you align with you know there's one organization up here that's really about finding the cure and it's like well you know that's not that's not my search yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not what i'm searching for so but i want to know what you're doing because I, i'm interested in you know the fundraisers that you hold and the campaigns and and who's speaking about blindness and how um but it's, you know, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, while I may be a membership and be on their mailing list, I'm not donating my money to them because right. I have other priorities, you know? So I donate mm -hmm. my money to like disability organizations in arts. So, so theater disability companies, 
um, because I'm an artist with a disability and that's important to me. Mm -hmm. So um, you, you mentioned your, your, your arts. Um, um, when, when did this love of artistry um, come about? Um, have you, have you always been interested in the arts prior to your vision loss? Uh, is, is this like a deep seated love of yours? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, my parents, I was the kind of kid that, you know, wore a long t-shirt and put a belt on to make it look like a hot eighties dress in the living room, and danced <laughs> the music up really, really loud with a microphone that didn't work. Right. Like that was, I was a very dramatic kid. And so my parents put me into, um, acting in drama classes when I was very, very young, maybe, maybe five, maybe six. I even remember the, the first show that I did, which wasn't on a stage. It was just like in a room in a library, but we, you know, we, we took acting classes to do it was a Christmas Carol. <laughs> and I was, I was the only one who could remember a lot of lines and, you know, it's the Christmas Carol. So they, they obviously took, it wasn't a, a, a three hour production, right? It was like a 30 minute production. It was very abridged. We'll call it. Uh -huh. um, they took out a lot of lines. It was just the essentials um, because the kids were so young. And um, the only way that we changed costumes was to change our hats. So like Scrooge had a top <laughs> hat and tiny Tim had a little Tam hat, right? So you would come on stage and they had multiple kids playing the same roles because they just couldn't remember the lines. And I remember I was playing um, Tiny Tim and Scrooge. And I was so embarrassed when I went on to do my, my uh, Tiny Tim lines, but I still had the Scrooge top hat on. And I was like, <laughs> it was devastating to me that I had like, you know, and the, and the parents probably thought it was like the most cutest thing ever. Um, but I was devastated. And, mm -hmm. but it is when I fell in love with acting and performing was because I knew I had this innate sense that one, the audience has a reaction to you, which is literally like a drug. Like you get a high from the audience responding to you. And two, that the idea of uh, like live, it, it, you know, it happens once and it's done. Like every night is different. Um, you got six shows. Every night you do the show, it's different mm -hmm. um, because the audience changes because, and it will never happen again that way because those people will never be in the room in the same way again. Mm -hmm. And there's something really magical about that for me in the arts. So yeah, I was, uh, and then after that chat, it was really a, a, a series of drama classes. And I was very active in drama in high school. We had um, kind of, a, um, um, I guess an extracurricular drama program. So everybody takes drama as part of their curricula, but, um, but I was taking after-school drama classes as part of drama club with, with, you know, grades in my school is grades eight to 12. Mm -hmm. So it was a real mix. And I started in grade eight. So it's like, oh my gosh, I'm hanging out with grade 12s. That's so scary. Um, but the grade 12s were like cool people because they were all in drama club. So they didn't care what, what age you were, whereas all the other grade 12s wouldn't be caught dead, you know, talking to an eighth grader in the hallway. Um, so yeah, so I, I just really got very involved and, and I did a lot of TV acting and stuff after high school. And then, um, yeah, so it's, it's always been a lifelong love of mine. And it's just been recently as a, as a blind artist that I've experimented in writing my own content and working on my own shows. And we're just in, the, I'm just in the, the beginnings of developing some of that that work so that'll yeah. be another two or three year process but that's super awesome. exciting yeah. yeah that's awesome that's that's great yeah was i have to ask was was there at any point any concern that you might lose your love of the arts after um the, the surgery went wrong and you uh, you know you lost your vision yeah i mean i uh, always have been a person who has uh, been a patron also of the arts so i like mm -hmm. to go to shows and things like that and i think 
when I first lost my sight, I thought, well, I'm never going to be able to enjoy this again. And Mm -hmm. I would, I would go occasionally to the theater and I would sit in the seat and I would fall asleep because, you know, it's nice and warm and dark and, and I couldn't follow the plot line. Yeah. So it became boring. Um, And then of course, I, as I mentioned a little earlier, I thought to myself, you know, who's going to want a blind actor and how, how do I read a script and how do I find the marks on the stage? And, Mm -hmm. you know, all of those pieces that I was trained to do as an art, as an actor, that I don't know how I would do again. And so um, I discovered two things. One is, is that I went to, actually they happened at the same time. I went to a production called Sexy Voices here in Vancouver. And it was done by a, a theater company called Real Wheels Theater. And Real Wheels Theater is a, a an integrated company, disability and able-bodied, but it, it did, did a lot of community projects where there were just folks with disabilities on stage telling their stories. And um, this is devised work. So they all wrote their own songs and all that kind of stuff, stand-up comedy pieces, poems for, for these, these shows. And um, I went to this show because it had audio description available. Mm-hmm. And it was the first described show that I had ever been to. And um, I went and here I was like, what, what are all these people with disabilities doing on a stage? How does that happen? Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that I realized that there was a way to do this. Mm-hmm. So I connected with, with the theater company right away. And then I never looked back because uh, one was, is that I knew through Vocalize that I could actually be a patron in a seat and listen to stuff because it was being described to me. And that was a whole game changer from a patron's perspective. And then to be an artist myself and want to be on stage and just work with a theater company that gets it. They're like, yeah, you know, you want to come on with your cane? No problem. You know, you want to put tactiles under your feet? No problem. Um, you want a sighted guide on the stage? No problem. Yeah. Uh, whereas other theater companies weren't there yet. They were like, no, no, we can't ruin, <laughs> ruin the aesthetics of all of this. And so that's why in my work and my advocacy, you know, uh, a big part of this is about representation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we have seen other equity seeking groups, whether they're folks of color or folks living with mental illness or you know, other equity seeking peoples that are, that, that have representation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and are, and are able to build that representation faster than the disability community has. I always say the disability community is like the second cousin twice removed at the dinner party. You're a member (laughs) of the family, but you never get an invite to dinner. (laughs) So that's kind of been my, my analogy around these things, especially when we talk about nothing about us without us and invite us to the table to do the work. Don't do it for us, do it with us, all that kind of advocacy stuff. Um, you know, representation is huge to me. So mm-hmm. our statistics in Canada and the States are pretty similar. Um, we're approximately 25% of the population identifies with disability. Um, and so where, where is that on our stages and our, and our, mm. and our screens, we never see a movie that's about disability. And if we do, it wasn't written by a person with a disability or performed by a person with a disability. Mm-hmm. So how do we ever make our stories authentic and not the poor me story that is like, you know, um, all of the big the big tropey ones that you've seen out there you know and yeah. every able-bodied actor like daniel day lewis my left foot and um uh what's his name uh dustin hoffman and and rain man all of these you know tom tom hanks and forrest gump yes all playing people with disabilities and they're all oscar winners so the minute you know some actor gets the opportunity to pretend to be disabled they win an oscar what the hell does that say to the community? <laughs> Right. It's like, you know, they just they're they're pretending, you know, it's like I, I, I this is what I think uh, quadriplegic or somebody with cerebral palsy 
looks like and acts like. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not how that works. Mm -hmm. So uh, what was the other one? Oh, the other one. Uh, what's his name? Uh, in I am Sam. Oh. Sean Penn and I am Sam playing an autistic man. And it's mm -hmm. like, okay. So this idea of, of having writers in the room that identify with disability to write characters, um, having performers that have lived experience of disability. Um, and further to that, having performers that are not like we all, we absolutely should be playing characters that, that are written with disability in mind. Um, but what about playing characters that weren't written for disability? Mm -hmm. Like, why can't the father of the bride just be a person who's using a wheelchair? It's right. not written that way, but that would certainly be representative of our population. Mm -hmm. um, and if you compare the disability community to other equity-seeking groups, you know, we don't do blackface. That's not something you don't pretend to be a black person when you're not. So why are we pretending to be disabled when we're not? Mm -hmm. And somebody once said to me, really? So does that mean we have to have like real cops playing cops and real doctors playing doctors? And I said, no. I said, those are professions. I said, disability is not a profession. It's a lived experience. And there's a whole bunch of systemic relationships to disability, whether it's forced sterilization, whether it is uh, our own version of residential schools and the abuse and the tort, whether it's uh, denied access to medical there's all sorts of, you know, employment, education, all of those pieces that have been denied to many folks that live with disability. And, and you know, maybe not so much you and I, Chad, because we have a certain level of privilege. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're somebody who lives with Down syndrome or somebody who lives with a cognitive disability, like when you look at the community as a spectrum, um, there are some real systemic considerations. And, um, and so just as there are when you're a person of color, mm -hmm. um, not the same, obviously but, but that there's a but that there's a relationship to a systemic that means that you're pulling something as an actor from a different place when you're talking about disability than an able-bodied person is of course because they have not experienced that nor do they really have an understanding that these things actually exist in the disability world so that's how i kind of integrate my my advocacy with my art <laughs> in some kind of ways no i mean you you bring up so many good points i mean and the one thing that, you know, that people say is, well, there's been movies that have featured disabled actors. And yeah, but then it's like, but those are so few and far between. I mean, look at Coda. Um, yeah. That he's only the second actor to win an uh, Oscar of, um, as a disabled actor. And it took him, it took how many years for someone of a disability to get that opportunity to actually have the chance to be represented of a community um, so it's just like, even when we do get opportunities, it's so far and few between, yeah. and it takes a lot longer than it should. And that's where I'm like, when something with Netflix doing all the light that remains, mm -hmm. they did, they did the great thing of actually getting a blind actor or actress, as I should say, to play the role of the lead character. They didn't go out and say, okay, we're going to find just a regular person with perfect sight. And then we're going to teach her how to be blind. No, because you can't do that because they're not going, like you said, they don't have that lived experience. And I, 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 I always hear that argument. It's like, oh, well, I guess um, like when it comes to like animation, it's like, oh, well, only Japanese people can play Japanese people in anime because it's from Japan or like, oh, so cops have to play cops. It's just like, but like you said, it's just like, on one hand, that's, you know, racial. And then that's also professional. Um, has nothing to do with like the the lived ex, you know for us to disable the lived experience it's you know we just want to make sure that there are actual authentic representations and it's not like this 
over dramatized it's like it's like it's like one of two things where either we have the oh it's like the the few good sad stories but oh at the end they overcome everything and they're better That's for right. it or yeah. or you have like oh they have superpowers so it doesn't matter that they're disabled or blind um they have superpowers so it's like oh yeah professor x you know motor mm-hmm. neural daredevil blind but it's okay because they have superpowers and that makes yeah. it it doesn't matter it's just like why is it um we either have to overcome a hurdle or um and be better for it or be have superpowers it's just like even when we do get representation in the arts it's these just morphed kind of gross, gross roles that are yeah. so cliche that they're not realistic in any anywhere form yeah either that or or you are um the dredges of society right yes for the poor disabled person who's mm-hmm. like um you know living on a street corner and begging for money and has a drug addiction and right beats their life because they're you know because they're broken in some way <laughs> yes um so yeah so that, and, you know there's no when you when you know that that's the when you know the power of media mm-hmm. and you know that that is um the kind of representation we have experienced on media there is no like no wonder people are afraid of us no wonder mm-hmm. people don't understand people with disabilities no wonder you know it's like there's a whole and i would say the same thing goes for for folks i had a great conversation i took an acting class in los angeles just before the pandemic for blind actors and um and it was one of the most fantastic things that i've ever done in my life so for six weeks i lived in in, in los angeles and, and took that that program and um uh i was i took an uber to my class one morning and um you know I'm talking to the uber driver I said to him you know what do you do and he says oh I'm an actor and I said oh me too right and so we started talking and and he said well you know he said as a black man he said I have I am no longer taking roles that are gangsters men that beat their wives um all of the tropes right um that we that media has told us about the black population and he said you know I'm really trying to make active change and he said, I recognize that there's going to be the next guy that auditions that will totally take it because they, you know, they haven't had a, had a, you know, had a role or mm-hmm. it's their first role or they'll take any role or any of those, those pieces. And yeah, I, I get that too. But I am in a place now as a person with a disability where I won't take a role that's written tropey, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, poor, poor you as the blind mm-hmm. girl, poor you. Um, I guess I didn't get the role in all the light you can see because uh, <laughs> I auditioned for it. <laughs> Well, they auditioned just about everybody that they could find in the blind uh, community, obviously. Um, and there aren't a lot of roles for for blind for blind artists, but you audition mm-hmm. for every one of them, even though you may not fit the right age category or whatever, because you need casting directors to know that you're out there, mm-hmm. um, and and then they'll keep you in mind for other for other things. So that's on Netflix now, is it? Uh, I don't know if it's released yet. I know uh, okay. that they um, they've been in production for quite some time. Yeah, of yeah. course, uh, Aria um, Liberty. Um, and then I heard, you know, Mark Ruffalo is in it, Hugh Laurie. Yeah. Um, so there's some really, really big name actors. And of course, um, her story is so interesting because she's not classically trained, um, yeah. from my understanding, as an actor. Um, they yeah. just basically we say that, you know, she's kind of just this natural talent that understood yeah. how to play the role. And they just yeah. loved her for that. Awesome. I'll have to I'll have to keep my radar open on that one. Mm-hmm. But it's good that we're seeing, like, you know, we had Coda, we have this now on Netflix coming out. Um, you know, uh, I know there, what was that one movie on Netflix? Um, it was like a horror movie, but the lead act, um, actor was blind. 
um, um, the, the, the character was blind, but also the actor was blind. So it's like, we're seeing it more and more, but um, you know, sometimes there is the feeling of, well, it's kind of like, it's like, why did it take so long? You know, yeah. like, why, why, and then why is it still not as much as it should be? Um, yeah, not only that, I think there's the stigmatization around, you know, that people with disabilities will work less hours, that we're less trained, that will be more difficult to work with because we have accommodations that that are that need to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when you think about, I worked in film before I was a gemologist, so I, like I I I understand. Um, how film works and how like every minute costs money and so when you when you when when your unconscious bias tells you all of this about the disability experience you tend to say well I'm not going to work on a show that needs to cast that way or and you know we're 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 slowly getting there Chad we are Mm -hmm. slowly but it is baby steps yeah Um, because still there's shows like the good doctor on tv that is written as a doctor with autism but the mm-hmm. main actor does not live with autism. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are still are still these things that are being written and performed. So we're not there yet. Right. We're not there yet, but, but we're, we're getting closer. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know, that's, I mean, at least at, in some way that's good for now is that, you know, we are making those baby steps, but, you know, eventually we're going to need to start running. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So you know you you, um, you talked about a um, vocal eye. Um, they they seem like they were very very um, important for you to find in in that time mm-hmm. when you were having a lot of doubts. Um, it had to be quite you know no pun intended but eye opening yeah. for for you when you're sitting um, at, at sexy sexy voices correct yeah yeah and and you and you and you're actually being engaged in these performances yeah. and you can be engaged with them and follow along that had to be so, again, no pun intended, but eye-opening for you because here you are thinking, oh, well, I can't do this thing that I love anymore. Like, or it's not for me or it's not designed around my disability now. Yeah. But then you find like a vocal eye and you're just like, oh, wow. So I can, I can keep doing this and I can keep expressing my love for the arts. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I work today, I work with vocal eyes. Mm-hmm. So we, we do a lot of, um, we actually do some online audio stuff, audio, uh, what am I trying to say? So some, we call them um, almost live events because uh-huh. they're live, but it's through your screen. Gotcha. And every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Pacific time, we gather, we do a little community chit chat, and then we share an arts adventure. So it could be a tour of something. It could be a described play. It could be an mm-hmm. audio play. Um, we have special guests in the space. We do a draw at the end of the night. And we have blind folks that join us from New York and all over the place every Wednesday night. Uh, some folks have joined us as far away as Japan and Australia. Oh, wow. Yeah, because you can connect online, right? Yeah. So of course, we've got folks from all over Canada, but um, Vocal Eye has has had to pivot during the pandemic because the theater went dark, right? So yeah, there was yeah. no live shows to describe. Um, so, uh, and I was a founding board member of Vocal Eye. Once I discovered it, I, I jumped on their board because mm-hmm. um, I was still doing a lot of volunteering. And, and then eventually, you know, their executive director said to me, I'd like to bring you on as staff. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I've been working now for them as staff for about four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I'm also, now I'm on the board of Real Wheels Theater as well. So, you know, you, the things that you love become a part of your life um, and you, and you continue with them. So, mm-hmm. 
I, I have great um, admiration for these organizations that, that changed my perspective on my own disability. Yeah. 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 It has to be also so not only rewarding, but, you know, for, for everyone else, but self-rewarding for you because you get to, you know, combine your love for the arts with your, your voice as an advocate. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it has to be, you know, and, and, and it must be very important that you can be there and be the representation as well now and help people define their voice and in, in the arts as well and make sure that no one has even a second of doubt that they have to give it up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's exactly, exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I actually, you know, we, we have talked about your opinions on, on the arts, but, um, you know, you know, where, when, you know, growing up, what would you say is something that, um, you identified maybe now that you have the perspective of, you know, tab <laughs> versus the, um, you know, the, the visually impaired person, um, what would you say is like, you know, your perspective on like the, the industry, like, you know, what are the differences and like the willingness to work with someone, you know, versus, cause you have those, you know, you basically have both sides of the coin kind of a, you know, perspective on this. You know, um, there's still a lot of stigmatization around employment. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think a part of what I do um, in teaching by osmosis, which is just like, watch me be a capable person. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully that means that the next person with a disability gets the benefit of the doubt, right? If, gotcha. if enough of us are, are presenting in the world as strong, capable human beings, I think that's good for the community in general. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there are folks that live with disability in the community that, that we know will never, will never have the opportunity to work or never want to work or don't have the capability of working. And that's okay too. We have to, we have to um, celebrate those lives the mm -hmm. same as we would celebrate any life because they all have value. Right. Um, but we also just need to, um, you know, to, to, to hold space yeah. for folks. Right. And so, you know, I, I was fully employed when I was a sighted person. I have no, had no problem getting employment or um, getting into school. And then once I became a non-sighted person, you know, people were looking at me as if they couldn't figure out how I was going to do stuff, even though I was doing it. Right. Um, you know, so it took a long time to get uh, decent full-time employment. Mm -hmm. um, and even, you know, going to school to, to upgrade some of my skills, is, uh, you know, now that I'm a blind person, I better figure out how to use Microsoft Word with a screen reader, Right. You know, the basic stuff. Um, it, it, it still, I, I found that some of those programs were felt patronizing to me mm. that, that, that people were looking at me like, okay, now that you're blind, we're going to uh, teach you how to use this little screen reader. <laughs> like I was a two-year-old and it's like, listen, I'm an adult. I, you know, I have an education. I yeah. have work experience. I, you know, like also anyways, so you could go, I could go on and on about those differences. Um, and so part of my advocacy work in, in the arts is to share with, with the, our tab friends in the arts, <laughs> what the barriers are to things like auditioning, what the yeah. barriers are to um, employment, why there aren't more of us doing this work in the arts. How do we open our doors and be more inclusive? How do we use our privilege mm -hmm. um, to make opportunities for other people? And that's the gift about privilege is that you recognize you're in a, in a place where you can say, you know what, I can build a two day a week 
job for somebody who lives with an intellectual disability mm -hmm. to come in and, you know, um, welcome guests into our theater, whatever, you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, and that's, that's, that, I'm going to say that's the beauty of privilege because as we certainly know that there's a lot of downfalls <laughs> misused. Yes. But if you can harness that idea um, and say, you know, we're an arts organization, we have a budget for this. Um, and even if you don't, we're going to build a budget for this. We're going to dream about being a more inclusive employer. Mm. That also is like, you know, some of the things that I've witnessed recently in, in, in working with some of my clients is, you know, people bring me on to sort of like, for example, be the accessibility coordinator for a festival. And, mm. you know, and I work with the same company over and over and over um, year after year with the festivals. And that's really lovely. But I never had to submit a resume um, because the, in the arts here, um, when you live with disability, they don't ask you to do that. They just ask you to jump on a Zoom call and have a conversation. So I consequently haven't updated my resume in a very long time because I haven't had to use it. Whereas I think if I was applying for any position in an able-bodied world, they'd want my resume, they'd want it in a PDF file, they'd want it, like they'd want all of these restrictive things that may not be accessible for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you can look at how your hiring practices are and say, you know what, if this person, you know, we, if our value is to hire somebody with a disability, then we have to be flexible and accommodating on how they submit. Okay, are there some spelling errors in their cover letter? Let's overlook that. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean a person isn't incapable. And there was a time when, you know, I, I do have a small background in HR too, because I dabbled in a lot of things, but there was a time where we were trained that if you had spelling errors, if you spelled the name of the organization wrong, all of those pieces, um, you know, they would throw out your resume and not even look at it. And then you, do, you know, what, what, what I learned as a person with a disability, because I also live with dyslexia, is that, um, Sometimes, you know, you have the best of intentions. Maybe you're using Dragon Naturally Speaking or Siri to put your cover letter together. And there's going to be some, maybe some typos or maybe some <laughs> words that, that don't, you know, don't quite fit in. Or maybe you're just a person who's English second language. Yeah. And it's not going to be a perfect cover letter. And instead of throwing those to the, way, the wayside, why aren't we saying, you know what, let's have a conversation with this person. And even if they don't tick all the boxes of the, um, all the skills you need as an that the employer is looking for, maybe they have enough of those where you can groom them into the ones that they don't have. And you will never know that unless you have a conversation with a human being. That is so deep. <laughs> yeah. so, and that's good for all of us. Who yeah. Are in right? yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you, you see it a lot with, you know, visually impaired. It's even myself sometimes, you know, I, I'm very good with screen readers and, you know, I've taken typing classes, but there are still times where I'll send something and I'm just like, crap, that was a typo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Oops. yeah. And, but you see a lot of people that have a visual impairment, like in, in, in their, their messages, in their letters, they, they will, they'll have like a, a pre, like it's already been inserted from the, from the creation of the letters saying, you know, please ignore typing errors no. i am visually impaired sometimes i i miss when my screen reader says something so apologies if there is a spelling error but please know it's not intentional it is just because of my disability yeah you know i it's on my the email that i send out from my iphone mm -hmm. because i dictate most of those mm -hmm. so if i'm going to send out an email to a, a client or mayor and council or something like that i'm going to sit down and i'm going to draft it and i'm going to 
But if I'm sending an email to you, Chad, or, you know, <laughs> like a friend or whatever, I'm going to just dictate it into my phone. Yeah. And Siri doesn't always understand what it is you're trying to say. Mm -hmm. So I do have in my subject line something that says, please note that this email is dictated. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, using dictation software, and you know, the, the, you know basically, that's not a perfect entity. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that has been helpful to be able to have that little disclaimer. And you know, if the pandemic's taught us anything, I think it's to be kinder to ourselves. Yeah. You know, when even in the workplace, um, and this happens a lot in the arts. I was talking to some of my um, colleagues yesterday. And was telling them about, you know, like, you know, I got some medical things coming up. I got to have some testing and like, you know, that's part of maintaining your body as a, as a person with a disability. And, um, and they're like, yeah, take all the time you need. And I was like, what, what do you mean take all the time I need? They're like, yeah, if you need to take some time away or like, I was just, you know, I was basically telling them that I would make up the time, you know, that I needed to be away to go, you know, right. get some tests done in a hospital. And they're like, you don't have to make up that time. And I'm like, what do you mean? I don't have to make up that time. Right. And they're like, you know, medical stuff is important and your health is important. And, and I find this in, in the arts environment here in Vancouver in, in particular, that you just make space for that. And, and it's yeah. so different than being in a world where, you know, you couldn't, you, you had to say to your friends, I'm sorry, I can't take you to the airport because I'm working nine to five. Mm -hmm. Whereas this, it's like, you know, one of my colleagues was like, yeah, I got to take my, you know, my sister to the airport. And, and I was like, so you're going to leave at two o'clock today to do that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, are you going to like, owe the company three hours? No, <laughs> no. So they have, you know, the arts organizations that I'm work with have this philosophy of live work balance and mm. know that especially when people are working from home it's like if you've got to go take your laundry out go take your laundry out <laughs> you know like that's just that's just part and parcel of being a human being but that you're going to be a more productive human being if you can step away for a moment if you can you know feel comfortable that you are able to you know do your laundry and you know type up your report at the same time mm -hmm. um, and as long as you get the tasks done that have deadlines that's all that really matters mm-hmm yeah. Um, and that's a very different way of working. Yeah, no, it is. And I will say that is something that I think maybe we have learned from everybody having to be isolated for a change in their lives because of this pandemic is the value of not only physical, but also emotional and mental health and making sure that that is okay. Um, and just, you know, there's been a lot of shifts. I think there's more and more companies and organizations now that have kind of seniored their ways into the industry that even they themselves are now identifying that um, this is something that needs to be of more importance now. So there is more, and, I, and, I, and I've seen it myself, it's just like more and more people are just like, you know, it's like, it's more so like, okay, you, you don't owe us anything if you need to go to the hospital or you, you, you're feeling ill or someone's not well, like there's more of an emphasis now on your own health but also your family and friends self as well yeah absolutely mm -hmm. and i just think that's more you know understanding compassion but then also it, it ties back into disability as well i mean i think now people are understanding more and more of the lived experiences of disabled people and what we've had to go through for pretty much our entire lives um yeah. i think there's a lot more empathy as well as sympathy um, but more so there's been exposure and now education on what our experiences have been. And I mean, again, I don't like to, you know, say, oh, well, if, 
anything good's come out of the pandemic, but I mean, I think we've at least had the time to learn and reflect on the way that our social economic environments are and um, where we're living in the world as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what is um, something that keeps you motivated, you know, keeps you excited about um, your advocacy work as well as your love for the arts? Because I mean, you know, we, you know, everyone has those days where they're exhausted and maybe they don't feel so good, but there's always something that, you know, we can, you know, take in and then be like, you know what, I'm doing this and I love it. Well, you know, what, what keeps you motivated and keeps you um, using that voice of yours, which you uh, definitely have a great voice, uh, uh -huh. not for acting, but as an advocate as well. Well, I hope for both. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for that. I appreciate, I appreciate that very much. Um, I think what keeps me motivated, Chad, is, is the drive of community. Mm -hmm. Um, is knowing that that maybe in some way, and this is not supposed to be an ego check or anything, but <laughs> some way that I am blazing a trail for folks mm -hmm. that are coming up behind me, mm -hmm. and that there were folks ahead of me that 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 blazed this trail that I'm on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if they if if I can cut down the weeds and and uh, deroute some of the pathway that some folks are gonna follow in my footsteps. In terms of, I mean, all things in advocacy, obviously, but for me excuse me, specifically in the arts. Mm -hmm. um, I really just want to make things a little bit more equitable. Mm -hmm. um, I hate to use the word easy, but you know, that would be sort of the, the, the plain language word of it right. is to just try and make it not such an uphill battle for folks to like get an audition or, um, and that comes with a lot of training able-bodied folks to understand just a small part of what it's like to live with a disability. And a lot in a lot of the work that I do around advocacy in the arts is I, I, I say to folks, it's like, it's great that you're having an audition. And they say, why don't people with disabilities come? And I said, well, one, did you invite them? Two, <laughs> did you make relationships with them? Have you made your process accessible? Because at the end of the day, you know, if you're an actor with a disability and maybe you don't have classic training, um, maybe you feel really insecure about what an audition is and how you do an audition. And when you're asked to submit for an audition, it's like, we need this and that, like a professional headshot and an acting resume and, and, you know, all of these, you know, pick three scenes that you're going to read. And it's like, can't you just give me the scene to read? And can't you just like, you know, book me in and then say to me, okay, this is what an audition is. And this, you know, they, they, they expect that professional actors know what to do. And if you don't have a lot of folks that have gone through four years of acting training because there's been so many systemic issues, um, you know, the, the wheelchair, average wheelchair user, the average blind girl who just wants to get into the arts, just wants to, to show you what we got, right. feels really intimidated. Um, so that's really what, what keeps me going is this drive for representation, um, this drive for the understanding to some level, like, you know, if you don't have a disability, you're never going to understand it completely. Right. Um, right. But the, but the, so some of the basic systemic things that go with, I mean, I said to one of our, one of our um, producers in the world the other day about um, the fact that if you're on disability income, you actually may not be able to take an acting job because whatever they're going to pay you could put you over what you're allowed to earn on disability income. Yeah. And then you've lost your benefits because there is no, you know, they, they don't just claw back. They go, oh, you're earning cut. And, uh, and you owe us money too. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and you're not going to risk that. So, 
you know, are there alternative ways of paying folks? I don't know. Mm. Um, you know, that, that gets into a whole bunch of, for, for us in Canada, it would be the, the Canadian Revenue Agency and you in the States would be the IRS, you know, same kind of thing, but it, you get into a whole bunch of like tricky stuff yeah. um, around that. It's like, could you pay somebody in gift cards? I don't know. Can you? I don't know. Right. Could you pay somebody's rent? I don't know. Um, like, can we be creative about this? There's one organization, it's not in the arts, but they, they um, work with folks on what we call here in Vancouver, the downtown East side, which is uh, an area where we have a lot of um, people who are quite marginalized in terms of like drug addiction, mm -hmm. also disability, because that comes with a very low income um, and, and they have a community garden in this organization. And I said to them, where do you get your funding from? So they told me that they got, get it from the Vancouver foundation, which is the city of Vancouver. Uh, when people die, they leave money to the city of Vancouver in like trusts and those trusts generate in, um, generate interest. And the interest goes to people who apply for the money. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it's great, but it is like a government run funding body. Right. And they said, you know, we quite transparently said to the government, we're going to pay people $30 an hour to work in this community garden. We're going to give them cash and we're not going to tell you their names because these people are already so marginalized mm. that every dollar that they earn, they need, um, they're on benefits. Um, so they can't really report it. So giving it to them in cash means it nobody needs to know, but it's not something that the CRA slash the IRS would want to know is happening, right? <laughs> but it's the reality. And oftentimes I, I say to, to, to funders and to arts workers and to anybody who will listen, it's like, you know, when you live with a disability and you're on benefits and our benefits are ridiculously, um, so like just, just, as a, just as an example, uh, you are allowed, and I use that term purposefully, allowed to spend $375 a month on your rent if you're on uh, what we call persons with disability benefits here in British Columbia. $375 a month is what you're allowed to spend on your monthly rent. Really? Yes. The average one-bedroom apartment in, in Vancouver goes for about $25 to $3,000 a month. I was about to say, there's no way it's $375. There's nowhere you can rent anything anywhere for $375. So this tells you that, that the gap between the benefits and the reality of where the world is with um, inflation and all that kind of stuff is grossly inadequate. Mm -hmm. um, so what you've done, basically, uh, the government has done is, is force people with disabilities to be criminals. Um, so if my, you know, if, if somebody in my family wants to give me a gift of $5,000, I'm going to have to hide that money under my mattress yeah. uh, because heaven forbid it go into my bank account and affect any of my, you know, the, the, the regular money that's coming in that you depend on so very much. Mm -hmm. Um, so, or you're going to say to somebody, can you pay me under the table, which, <laughs> you know, some places have a real problem with, and some places are like, yeah, we can figure out how to do that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if there was, if there was better ways of being able to support people, then you could, you could, yeah, be on disability benefits and work because yeah. living with a disability is expensive. So even if I'm, even if I'm making, you know, you have to be making something like 80 or $90,000 a year as a single person in Vancouver to be able to, to afford. And that's just still just like on the poverty line. Yeah. Um, that, that's a, that's a, that's a ton of money. 
Mm -hmm. So if you're making, you know, $20,000 a year on disability benefits, you're, you're like that, that's like way below the pot, like, right. <laughs> so all of these systemic considerations and it's like, oh, great. Like we can just hire actors with disabilities. Well, no, because if you push them over the edge of their benefits, mm -hmm. you know, unless you're going to offer them a, a job at a hundred thousand dollars a year, that's sustainable for them. That's another reason why they're not going to come and audition. Yeah. Um, so there's all sorts of these things. And that's the thing that keeps me motivated is educating folks and making change where we can make change, change that means something, yeah. right? Not, not all this bureaucratic change where, <laughs> where, you know, you change one thing and it's a domino effect that impacts another thing. And it's like, okay, well, that didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that resonates me, with me on a personal level, because, you know, that's, that is something that really it shouldn't have to be a balancing act because then it just plays into the systemic system of failure for disabled people. Um, and that is the whole, you know, benefits from the government. It's like, you know, it's not as, it's definitely not as strict that, or at least I hope it's not, but uh, I've never been basically told, oh, you only have 375 to spend a month. No, for me, it's always been, I can't have more than 1500 in both my checking and my savings at one time combined. Oh, um, now that is also extremely limited because let's say, you know, for a paycheck a month, you get about a thousand dollars. You are, then you're already halfway over the budget that you have to have. So, and it becomes this thing of, well, I have to spend money and basically get rid of money just so that I could continue to get assistance. Otherwise, not only do I lose a bunch of money that I need to, unfortunately, even with a paying job, I have to have to get by and pay bills just so I can make it to the end of the month. Yeah. But then I'm also, because there's been plenty of times where something's gone wrong and I then owe them money and I have to pay them back a bunch of money. And then it's like, okay, so not only now am I not getting money, but I owe you money. It's like, how is this a cycle where I can have any success? It's always been this like, well, they don't want you to be successful if you're using their benefits. They want you to be failures. They want you to owe them or they want you to sit on your bum and do nothing. And then again, that just plays back into this, the, the system of failure for disabled people. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it's like, there's got to be something that we can figure out. And, you know, maybe you and I can hopefully lay a foundation for it someday, but there's got to be a better way for disabled people to if they still need benefits because trust us it's not an affordable living environment nowadays when it comes to social no. economic environment so yeah. unfortunately disabled people they're we're going to need that and it's not that we want it but it's become such a necessity so there's got to be something where we can flip the, the, the script and make this more advantageous to disabled people yeah, yeah. absolutely well, I want to thank you so much because I think that's a good place to end it. <laughs> Give them for some my listeners uh -huh. some food for thought. <laughs> but um, Amy, I, I I thank you so much. I'm so happy that we can make this work. Um, I know that we've been talking for a while, and I just want to thank you for uh, being patient with me and uh, still, you know, allowing me the opportunity to talk to you. Um, you know, I resonate very much with what you said today. So hopefully my listeners, um, they can take away a lot to think about going forward. So just thank you so much. But um, before I let you go, can if you would like to, can you share where people can follow you and um, support you? 
yeah, you know, I'd like to say that I'm much more connected, uh, but I'm <laughs> certainly not. Um, I am on Facebook, the, the, like the old, old Facebook, where everybody's on Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and all those fun things. I'm not on any of those things, um, but it, it is Amy Amanti on, uh, on Facebook. So yeah. it's M-Y-A-M-A-N-T-E-A, like a man drinking tea. Um, <laughs> Uh, and you can, if you want to follow me, follow the work that I do. Um, that's great. I just, I just did a show on Friday um, on um, um, my, the, the, what, what we call the alpha presentation, which is the first sharings of a show. And uh, the show is called Through My Lens. And mm. it's my intersection of, of photography and blindness. Nice. Uh, so, uh, you know, folks are interested in the kind of artistry that I am starting to embark on mm-hmm. um that's also a way that i'll be i'll be updating folks on that as well so awesome. yeah thanks for the opportunity chad it's been fun yeah thank you and i, and I love that name through my lens that's that's mm-hmm. yeah better trademark that one <laughs> uh, yeah i've been thinking about it i've been thinking about it well hey thank you so much amy it's been amazing to talk to you today um just thank you for all the work that you do um uh, you have an amazing voice and um, just, I appreciate the work that you do for this community. It, it definitely makes a, a difference. So thank you. Thanks, Chad. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, that's going to be it for today's episode. If you would like to pass any questions along to my guests today, but you want me to do it for you, because maybe you're shy, I can do it for you. Just email me at cmbouton. That is C as in Chad, M as in Michael, B as in boy, C-M-B-O-U. T-O-N at yahoo.com. One more time, and it's all one word, cmbouton at yahoo.com. If you want to follow the podcast on Twitter, please go to at 2200 hindsight. That's at 20200 hindsight. Again, at 2200 hindsight. Of course, if you know anybody that would love to listen to the podcast, please let them know. We are on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and we are on Spotify. Just search for hindsight is 20 slash 200. Please remember to put the slash in between the 20 and 200. That's hindsight is 20 slash 200. Well, all right, guys, thank you again for listening. And thank you again to amazing guest, Amy Amanti. Until we meet again, please, as I always say, be nice to each other, be kind to each other and take care of each other. Until we meet again, take care, guys.